KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. It's time for KPBS Midday Edition. A new book says any one of us can be wrongly convicted and end up in prison, even if you're innocent. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. Justin Brooks of the California Innocence Project says it's not just other people who get convicted of crimes they didn't commit. This does happen to just regular people going through their lives. Middle-class people living middle-class lives end up getting caught up in wrongful convictions. How interrogations and even science can go wrong to end up convicting the wrong person and how racism and poverty increase the risk. That's next on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. The California Innocence Project, based here in San Diego, has successfully freed 37 people who collectively served hundreds of years in prison for crimes they did not commit. Nationwide, there have been more than 2,600 exonerations of the innocent. But if you're really innocent, how do you end up in prison in the first place? It's easy to think that all the people who end up falsely convicted must have done something to get themselves there. Maybe have a criminal record or run with the wrong crowd and gotten involved in some sort of crime. But a new book says, nope, anyone can be wrongfully convicted. And it tells us exactly how it can happen. Justin Brooks is founding director of the California Innocence Project, and he's author of the book, You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. And Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Is it still difficult to get people to believe that the people you help get out of jail didn't do the crime? Yeah, I think, you know, when I started the California Innocence Project now, 24 years ago, uh, the conversation was more about, are there any innocent people in prison? Uh, and I think, you know, with DNA, and as you mentioned, when we get it, we've now thousands of people have been exonerated. I think it's very difficult for anyone to take the position of there haven't been innocent people in prison, and there aren't currently innocent people in prison. But I think what people are in denial now is, first of all, whether that could ever happen to them or a family member. And people are still deeply cynical about cases where often the evidence that they're looking at is nowhere near as good as they think it is. And that's what this book is about. I, I, I wrote this book to both let people understand from the cases I've worked on and cases around the country that this does happen to just regular people going through their lives, middle-class people living middle-class lives, end up getting caught up in wrongful convictions, and also a lot of stuff that people see on the news about people confessing to crimes or they were identified um, by witnesses or there was some sort of science that convicted them. 
there's a lot of problems with uh, those types of evidence. But how how can a wrongful conviction happen to anybody? I think people can understand, you know, if you have a terrible lawyer who falls asleep during the trial or something like that, or you you resemble the the person who really did the crime. But how else can that happen? Well, let's take Kimberly Long, for instance. She's a white, middle-class nurse, uh, lives out in the suburbs, and she comes home one night, and she finds her boyfriend beaten to death. And unfortunately, Kimberly, earlier in the day, was in an argument with her boyfriend in a bar, and people witnessed that argument. Well, at that point now, the police have motive. They have opportunity. Uh, We know that statistically, most homicides are actually domestic, and they're now going down that road towards conviction, and they are pretty close to a conviction without anything more than that. Uh, That's enough to put in the jury's mind that this, this woman had a reason for doing it. She was on the crime scene, and fortunately, we were able to garner enough evidence together with time of death analysis and with DNA that was found on the crime scene and with other suspects to convince a judge that she was factually innocent and we freed her, but she spent seven years in prison for a murder Mm -hmm. she didn't commit. You also talk about things that are on the jury's mind that can lead to false convictions. And one of them is junk science, science that Mm -hmm. is presented by the prosecution that really has no basis in fact. Yeah. I, I mean, juries get dazzled by expert witnesses and it it, lots of times it comes down to who has the best expert witness not necessarily what is the best science but who can sell it the best Mm. so when they put an expert on the stand and they say they went to harvard and they say they've written a hundred articles and they've testified in a thousand cases and they're very credible and they sound good um jurors will go along with them um and in my book i look at a number of sciences that have been completely undermined, some that, that don't even deserve the name science, like forensic odontology, which is basically bored dentists who become experts in odontology and come into court and claim that bite marks match up to suspects. And that's just a junk science. Bite marks are basically bruises on bodies that are pretty much impossible to match up. And yet this has become a whole sort of faulty forensic science. But what if you're a person, uh, you have a solid alibi, and you couldn't have committed the crime? Well, I had a client who had the best alibi I've ever seen, Raphael Madrigal. He was working in a factory on the line, 30 miles from the crime scene. He had no connection to anyone in the crime, any of the victims. There was no physical evidence that linked him to that crime. And yet, based on a cross-racial identification of a photo taken when he was a teenager, and he was nearly 30 when the crime happened, he still got convicted. And fortunately, we were able to go to the factory, find definitive proof that he was working that day. And fortunately, the guy who actually committed the crime admitted it over a jailhouse phone call to his girlfriend and said, I don't know who this guy Raphael Madrigal is, but he's getting convicted for this shooting that I did. Uh, and so, you know, having an alibi, even one that rock solid, is not necessarily going to get you out of a wrongful conviction. It's it's hard to believe that uh, police or prosecutors would actually set out to put innocent people in jail. So what goes wrong with these investigations? 
Yeah, I think that's that's an important thing to think about. And I think, Maureen, if you'd asked me that question 30 years ago when I was a young lawyer, I'd probably have a different answer. I was much more, I don't know, angry and young and criminal defense <laughs> attorney. And, I, and, you know, I went into cases like these guys are out to get my clients. But most of the time, I don't think that's true. I think most people get up every day and try to do the best they can with their jobs, whether it's police or prosecutors or plumbers or anybody. And I think what happens more than people setting people up, it's just mistakes that are made. And it's just that all professions follow the bell curve, where there's a very small percentage of people who are extraordinary at their work. Most of us are good to okay. And then there's people who are terrible at it. And so I think a lot of wrongful convictions occur because initially police get blinders on and they, they come up with their own theory and then they run with it and they start building the case from that. In that case, is it safe to talk with the police to, as they say, help them eliminate you from their investigation? It's never a good idea to talk to the police in an interrogation situation. So I'm not saying it's never a good idea to talk to the police if you know, you're stopped on a street or you're in a traffic detention or something like that. You know, you're going to have a lot of inconvenience in your life if you always refuse to talk to the police. But if you are in a situation where you are being questioned about a crime, there is absolutely no benefit in that situation to talking about it. You need to get a lawyer. You need to find out what's going on. The police cannot make deals with you. It's up to prosecutors to decide whether you get prosecuted or not. And the police are allowed to lie to you. Um, and that's something I get into in my book as well. We just passed in California a law that the police can no longer lie to juveniles because so many false confessions have occurred where juveniles are lied to, but they also have occurred when adults are lied to. So it is not a good idea to talk in an interrogation situation. Nothing good is going to come from that. But then again, don't police view people who, quote unquote, lawyer up with suspicion? Sure. <laughs> but I still think in the long run, you are better off having a lawyer look at everything. And it, and it ultimately doesn't matter whether the police are looking at you with suspicion. What matters is what's going to happen ultimately in that courtroom and what evidence is going to be introduced and we don't have mandatory recording of confessions in this country. There's some few states that have made it mandatory, but it's not mandatory across the board. And so you'll often have these lengthy confession situations and interrogations where all kinds of shenanigans are going on. And the only thing the jury is going to hear is that final confession that's made. So it's just not a good idea. Now, Justin, in your book, you might go to prison even though you're innocent. You talk about how you got into innocence work, and it was the case of a woman who was sentenced to death on a plea deal. Now, that had to be a case of having a bad lawyer. Yeah, a really bad lawyer. Um, she, unfortunately, uh, was assigned a great public defender, a woman who'd done hundreds of cases and really knew what she was doing. And I've seen this mistake happen a lot of times where she just assumed it's a public defender. I want to go get a, a, a private lawyer. And then her friends hired a guy who had a little office in the neighborhood, gave him a $10,000 retainer. And for that, he went in and entered a blind plea of guilty, meaning there was no negotiation with the prosecution. And she was sentenced to death based on that. 
And I was so shocked to read in the newspaper about that case that I actually set up an appointment with her on death row in Illinois. And I went out and met with her and she told me she was innocent. And that was 27 years ago. And at the time I was teaching law school in Michigan and I got some students in my class to help me out. And we started investigating her case. And that night sitting in my house around my kitchen table with my students looking at police reports, the Innocence Project uh, was born for me. But that case, even though that case inspired me to start the California Innocence Project, I started that case when I was 29 years old. I finally got her fully exonerated this past October when I was 57 years old. Uh, So I've spent most of my life working on that case. How do you evaluate the cases you take now at the Innocence Project? So we get thousands of of letters a year because California has such a massive prison system. And I've got an amazing team of lawyers and law students that go through all the letters. Um, We send out questionnaires to the prisons. We get as much information as we can about the case. We talk to the trial lawyers. We talk to the appellate lawyers. And every case gets investigated. And if we believe it's a, a case of innocence and a case we can win, um, we take it on and we go into litigation on it. And, um, yeah, we've been lucky that we've been able to free as many people as we have. Um, but it, it's hard work finding the cases that are winnable. And, and it's tragic how many cases I have to say no to. Uh, at twice a week, there's presentations in our office. I, I had them yesterday afternoon. And uh, students present the cases, the lawyers present the cases. And I've got the awful Caesar-like power of thumbs up or thumbs down. And sometimes I think they could be an innocent person, but I just know we're never going to be able to prove it. And that's heartbreaking. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, even those cases that you think are winnable, do you have an average time of how long they take in the, in the courts by the time you take them on and the time there's some final resolution? The only cases that get resolved quickly are ones where we get cooperation from the prosecutor's offices. And, you know, I've seen some real good movement in California and around the country with conviction review units opening in prosecutor's offices uh, here in San Diego. Uh, Bonnie Dumanis and I uh, together exonerated a couple of clients where we had that kind of cooperation where things went quickly and you can get it all resolved within a year. Um, but when the, when the prosecution decides to fight, as they do in most of the desert counties in California, it's sometimes decades. Uh, they fight us on access to the evidence room. They challenge whether evidence can be admitted They fight the hearings. When we win the hearings, they appeal, and they can drag these cases on forever. Uh, That's what happened with Bill Richards out in San Bernardino. That was 15 years of litigation. And in that case, they even litigated whether DNA was a valid science uh, just Mm -hmm. to drag the process on and on and on. And uh, this is not the way the criminal justice system should operate. Now, we've mentioned a few ways your book says anyone could be wrongfully convicted. But when we come back from a short break, I'd like to concentrate on two of them. I'd like to talk more about false confessions, because I think that's a concept that's still difficult for a lot of people to comprehend. And how being poor or a person of color increases your chances of a wrongful conviction. Sounds good. Thanks. 
I've been speaking with Justin Brooks with the California Innocence Project about his new book, You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. We'd love to hear your thoughts about wrongful convictions. Give us a call at 619-452-0228 and leave a message. Or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program. Shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. Justin Brooks with the California Innocence Project is out with a new book called You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. And we've been talking about the various reasons innocent people have gotten caught up in criminal prosecutions and been convicted of crimes they did not commit. So welcome back, Justin. Thank you so much. Now, you have a number of different chapter titles uh, outlining areas where you could be in trouble with the law if if this happens to you, if, if you have a sick child and that child succumbs to some illness, if you are watching children and one of those children should have an unfortunate accident, a number of different chapter titles, all categories that could get you in trouble, could get you wrongly convicted if things really go wrong. But I want to talk about one of the most confusing and controversial reasons innocent people get convicted, and that's the fact they've confessed to a crime they didn't commit. Now, most Mm -hmm. people say they would never confess to a crime they didn't commit. And I'm wondering how often you've heard that. Oh, I've heard that so often because I often start presentations with that. In fact, just this uh, past week, I was at um, a university and I asked a group of students, you know, who believes here you'd never confess to a crime you didn't commit? And a whole bunch of hands went up. And that's very troubling for me that here I am in front of a group of educated young people uh, that if they become jurors, and they see a confession, they're likely to convict that person. And we now know that innocent people do confess. In fact, in 17% of the cases where DNA 100% exonerated the person, those people confess to crimes they didn't commit. But at first, did you even have a hard time believing that there were such things as false confessions? I don't remember. It's been so long that I've known there's been false confessions that I don't remember. But yes, I think it's human nature to think, why would anyone possibly do this? Especially in a period of time or in now where, of course, sometimes there's violence uh, used in obtaining confessions, but it's very rare. We're in a period of time now, this sort of post-Miranda period of time, where it's more psychological coercion than physical coercion. So I think people can understand that, sure, if somebody hit me in the head with a phone book a hundred times, I'm probably going to say whatever they want to hear. But they have trouble believing that someone could psychologically coerce them into confessing to something that could lead to a lifetime in prison or possibly even the death penalty. So what happens? I mean, do some people actually start believing they committed the crime? Sometimes that happens. Sometimes people just get deeply confused. I think the Amanda Knox case 
is a perfect example of that. You have a young woman who's in Italy as she's a, you know, a university student studying overseas. She comes home, she finds her roommate murdered. She's now in a police interrogation room. They're interrogating her in Italian where she doesn't speak the language. It goes on overnight. They keep feeding information to her that she just starts believing. And, you know, it is very hard for any of us to put ourselves in that situation where, first of all, you've gone through some deep trauma. Now you're in a room cut off from everybody else. You're surrounded by homicide detectives. You're kept up all night. And we can't really put ourselves there. So it's, it's very hard to understand how it happens. And you also call out a certain police interrogation methods when it comes to false confessions. You talk about the read technique. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So the read technique is probably the leading cause of, of bad confessions. And the read technique is designed not to get the truth, but to get the person you're questioning to agree with your narrative. And that's a fundamental thing that people don't understand about interrogations. People think that police are trained to get the truth, and they're not. They are trained to get the suspect to agree with the narrative the police already have. And that's a very different thing. And so the technique is geared towards cutting off communications with other people, cutting off the suspect when they're deviating from the narrative, showing empathy to the suspect, saying things like, oh, I would absolutely understand why you would kill the person. Here's why I understand that. And it's a technique to coax the person into ultimately going along with the narrative. And the police will go at it for hour after hour after hour until that narrative is fully accepted and adopted by the suspect. Does that go along the line of the things we sometimes see on TV where someone keeps saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, and the police say something like, I don't want to hear you didn't do it anymore, I want to know how you did it, that, that kind of thing. That's literally one of the 10 phases of the read technique, what you just described. That's exactly what it is. That's one of the techniques. Okay, so I saw that on TV, but I think most people who watch TV also know about Miranda rights. So why don't people stop an interrogation so it doesn't go on for hours and hours and wear them down? Well, there's so many ways around Miranda. I've actually ultimately come to the conclusion that Miranda might be harmful in terms of interrogations, because if you look at some older cases, judges were more willing to accept that a confession was involuntary before Miranda. And now it's sort of, well, you were given your Miranda rights, and so this must have been a voluntary confession. But there's a bunch of holes in Miranda. I mean, first of all, they can interrogate you for hours, and then at the end of getting all the information, they can say, okay, well, first of all, let me let you know, you've got a right to a lawyer present, and you have a right to remain silent. Do you understand that? Yes. Do you want a lawyer here? Well, at this point, it doesn't matter. Okay, tell me again how you killed your wife. And mm -hmm. the courts will not accept the cat out of the bag theory of you saying, well, my client confessed because they hadn't Mirandized them all night. And now he figured, I've already said this stuff. Um, so the, the, the court has chiseled away. And by the way, the Supreme Court has chiseled away at most criminal procedure rights that were created in the 1960s to the point of, I don't know how much value Miranda really has. It's, it's just words and up against all this psychological coercion, it, it's not much of a defense.
So what could be done to make false confessions less likely? You know, I think the procedures have to be one where the police aren't going in with a narrative. In fact, some police departments have started using a technique that's more like the silent technique where they kind of stare at you until you start giving information as opposed to the police giving the information. And I think that's the most critical thing is you cannot be feeding suspects information to have them parrot it back at you. And that's what leads often to false confessions. It's got to be hard to convince a judge that your client is in prison because of a false confession. You know, it's hard, but one thing that makes me feel really hopeful, and I don't know if a lot of stuff I've said today is very hopeful, but one thing that has made me hopeful is uh, since I've been in California, judges have been much more open to our claims, and jurors have been much more educated as to wrongful convictions. And it's conversations like you and I are having today, it's podcasts, it's Netflix series, it's movies, It. The last couple of decades, we've just seen a lot of information out there, and people now do understand that people are wrongfully convicted, and judges have become much more educated about it. Um, When I first started the California Innocence Project, the first petition that I filed that I spent about six months working on was denied about 15 minutes after I filed it. And it was like 130 pages long with tons of documents. And I think back then the judges just rubber stamped denied all the habeas petitions that were filed because they were filed by, you know, people who are incarcerated and most of them weren't well written or well documented. And there's a lot more cynicism. Now we get hearings on almost every petition we file and we win almost all our hearings. So there has been a shift uh, and I'm hopeful about that. Now, even though the theme of your book is that anyone can be wrongly convicted, you make the point that race and poverty increase your chances of going to prison, even though you're innocent. Are people of color more vulnerable to all of the factors outlined in your book? Absolutely. And uh, that chapter is the last chapter of the book. It was the hardest chapter to write uh, in a lot of ways. Because everything else in the book, I can clearly just point to and say, we had a bad confession, it led to a wrongful conviction. We had a bad ID, it led to a wrongful conviction. But when it comes to race and when it comes to poverty, it's very hard to identify that as a specific cause of wrongful conviction. But when we look at a 30,000-foot view and look at statistics, it permeates the entire system. And anyone who thinks that the criminal justice system isn't racist has to believe then society as a whole isn't racist because it's just a microcosm of society, a bunch of people who go into buildings around the country every day and make these decisions. And they bring their own biases and their own prejudices with them. And there's study after study after study that shows that people of color are more likely to be convicted, more likely to get greater sentences. And in terms of poverty, it's just crystal clear that the more money and resources you have and communities you come from, the more likely you're going to have a better time working your way through the criminal legal system. One of the things that we've talked about before uh, in, in interviews is how eyewitness identification is especially suspect when it crosses racial lines. That mm-hmm. actually, that specifically has led to a lot of innocent people being convicted, hasn't it? 
I've personally walked six people out of prison who were convicted based on cross-racial identifications. And I spend so much of my time talking to lawyers about this because lawyers are not good at explaining to jurors, look, race makes a difference in identifications. And part of it is just our society is not comfortable talking about race. But it's not to do with racism. It's to do with exposure. And if when you were a child and developing your facial recognition software and, you know, you first figure out who your mom is and then your dad is and then all the people around you, you if mom is white and dad is white and everyone around you is white as a child, you will not be good at identifying people of color for the rest of your life. It's just a scientific fact that based on your exposure is why you're good at identifications. And we see time and time again, people wrongfully convicted on cross-racial identifications. They're just, I, I have zero faith in them at this point. And as you say, you know, the people who walk into the court, the people involved in the, the uh, justice system are just like everybody else. And if there's systemic racism in our society, their systemic racism in our court system. But that must be very hard to argue in court that that played a role in a wrongful conviction. Exactly. And that's why in my book, I kind of start with the history of all the overt racism in our laws and the Jim Crow laws and, and all the things we've seen in our history. Now we're at a period of time where it's much more covert. It's much more difficult to ferret out. But we still know that people have more empathy to people who look like them, who come from the same communities. If they see their brothers and their sisters and their fathers and people they know in the eyes and the faces of a criminal defendant, it's going to have a different result. And there's an interesting study I, I talk about in my book where they used virtual reality to have people watch trials. And the only thing they changed was the race of the defendant. And they found wildly different results in terms of who was found guilty, how long the sentences were, solely based on the isolated factor of the race of the defendant. And when you look at race of victims, the statistics are staggering in that your chances of getting the death penalty in the United States increased tenfold if the victim was white. Uh, and that's because that becomes a bigger news story. People get more focused on it. And the majority of jurors are majority white. And they're going to have much more empathy and much more feeling when it's a white victim than when the victim's a person of color. And if you are poor and you find yourself in prison, wrongly convicted, are there any kinds of government resources that can look at a, a conviction and say, you know, this this can't stand, this person did not commit this crime. Does that ever happen? It has been happening in these conviction review units that have been opening up in prosecutors' offices. And there's been some good ones. I think San Diego has done a good job at looking at some cases. We don't always agree, but uh, they have actually freed some people. The Los Angeles uh, prosecutor's office, we've worked on a few cases with and had people released. But as Led Zeppelin taught us, 1970s there's two paths you can go by uh, and uh, the other path that we've seen more in the desert counties in california is prosecutors just fight us to the bitter end and they have zero interest in reviewing old cases and so it, it's kind of up to uh, the prosecutor's office and it's very unique to the united states that people are always saying like well why not do a national project to look at all the shaken baby cases or look at all the cases with bad IDs. And that's not possible within our system. 
because each state has its own penal code, mm-hmm. and then each county is run by the prosecutor's office. Whereas in other countries, like in Britain, they've done things like that, national commissions that can review cases. Uh, that would not work within our system. So it's up to the individual offices whether they're going to look at these old cases. When we return from a break, uh, Justin Brooks, author of You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent, and I will discuss some of the efforts underway to reform the criminal justice system for the innocent and even for the guilty. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We'd love to hear your thoughts about wrongful convictions. Give us a call at 619-452-0228 leave a message, or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. We've been talking about the new book, You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent, with the book's author, Justin Brooks, founding director of the California Innocence Project, and he remains with us. Thank you for staying here, Justin. My pleasure. Now, you've been doing work to free innocent people. How long did you say for over 20 years, right? Uh, well, 27 years ago, I started Marilyn Malero's case. So that's how long I've been doing innocence work. I did have one innocence case as a criminal defense attorney coming out of law school. So I guess it's 33 years I've been doing this. Okay, well, from my recollection, for a lot of that time, lawmakers and voters were supporting tough on crime legislation that put more and more people in prison. How did that crackdown affect innocence work? Oh, how it affected everything in our society. I mean, I, I tell my criminal law students that Willie Horton might be the most important character in the history of criminal law. And I know your your young listeners will not remember a guy named Mike Dukakis when he ran for president against uh, the first George Bush. But he lost that election because George Bush's team came up with a great idea, which was since Mike Dukakis was governor of Massachusetts, just find someone who was paroled in Massachusetts who went out and committed a violent crime. And then they could say Mike Dukakis is soft on crime because technically he's in charge of parole. And it worked. And George Bush won that election. And ever since then, politicians have learned, do not appear to be soft on crime, be tough on crime. And they get the benefits of support from the correctional officers' unions, from the prosecutors' unions, from police forces, uh, by taking tough on crime stances. And they don't run the risk of losing voters by appearing to be soft on crime. That's really changed everything. As I say, the tough on crime legislation, that really swelled the prison population in general, didn't it? We've built the biggest prison system in the world, and not only the biggest prison system, we incarcerate a higher percentage of our population than any country in the world. And I always ask the question when I'm talking about this of, how is it possible when there's a direct connection between poverty and crime that the wealthiest country in the world incarcerates the highest percentage of its population? That makes no sense. And the only way to understand it 
is to look at the politics behind it. And that's decades of tough on crime policies, increasing sentences, building prisons. And that's where we are now. But isn't that changing? I mean, isn't there now a real push towards criminal justice reform and, and, and dialing back on, you know, things like three strikes and, and those, those harsh, tough on crime laws that were passed earlier? Yes, and thank God. Uh, California, I'm proud to announce, is no longer the largest prison system in the United States. It is now Texas. They overtook us. And the reason they overtook California is because some of those reforms you're talking about. Uh, we've had marijuana law reforms. We had felony murder reforms. We had three strikes reforms. And it significantly dropped the prison population in California. And there hasn't been this big crime wave, this, this fear that politicians sell. In fact, I just read this morning that the homicide rate in Los Angeles has dropped significantly over the last year. So it's been all this fear that's been sold um, to get people elected that has led us to where we are. But uh, yeah, I'm pleased to report that at least in California and a few other places, we're seeing a lot of reforms that are desperately needed to decrease the prison population to allow more rehabilitation to go on within prisons, which isn't happening now because they're so overcrowded. And that's in everyone's best interest. Some of the people who are working to reform the criminal justice system has some have some criticism for innocence projects. What, what they've been saying is that it creates a difference in the public's mind about good people in prison as opposed to the bad people in prison that we shouldn't care about. What's your take on that? Yeah, I actually take that on in my book directly because I have so much respect for some of the scholars that have written on that topic. Um, in particular, uh, Jody Omar, who's a professor at uh, USC, he has criticized the innocence movement of saying it doesn't, it now focuses all the empathy on the innocent. And you know what? I think that's accurate to a certain point. Um, you know, the, the public does care about innocent people in, being in prison, and they don't understand or care enough about everybody else who is there. So I think that's a legitimate criticism. I think the only thing I can say, you know, to push back a little bit is that we have improved the criminal justice system for everyone. And things like the death penalty, we see, you know, it slowly going away. And the main reason it's going away is because we've now walked nearly 200 innocent people off death row. And I think the general public is very uncomfortable with a death penalty that people are going to be executed who are innocent, whereas right. they may not care about guilty people being executed. Right. And do you see other ways that the work of innocence projects have sort of impacted what's going on for the larger criminal justice system or, or the people who are in prison who are not innocent? Well, it certainly has improved the system in things like we, in California, we've got reforms now in identification procedures that every police department has to follow. And the result of that is that fewer innocent people go to prison and they find more guilty people. So it's not just that our work is necessarily benefiting the innocent. In fact, that's what's always bothered me about some of these reforms and the opposition to it. For instance, the opposition to recording confessions is ridiculous because if confession procedures were done correctly, 
the police would want them to be recorded. They'd want to be able to show them in court and say, look, that we offered this guy tea or coffee and he confessed to killing his wife. But they don't want them recorded and they've been fighting us on that. A, a lot of these reforms will lead to fewer innocent people getting caught up in the system, more guilty people being taken off the streets. So I think we, we've had a significant impact overall on the quality of the system. Justin, you've talked about America's criminal justice system needing reforms from the ground up. Where would you start? I'd start with trying to free up resources within the system. So, for example, legalizing marijuana, what that does is we then have fewer people coming into the courts. We have fewer people going into the prisons. And the impact of that is the lawyers have a lower caseload. The judges are dealing with fewer cases. The prisons are dealing with fewer people. Now you can have better trial processes going on. And in prison, we can have more programming to make people into better functioning people by the time they get out of prison. Because as well as having the biggest prison system in the world, we also have one of the worst success rates in the world, where most people who go to prison go back to prison a few years after they get out. And we really need to start working on that. So anything that could free up resources, I am fully in support of. And again, that doesn't mean not putting violent people in prison. It doesn't mean not protecting our communities. It means being thoughtful about what things we criminalize, what kind of sentences we give those people, and having more of a utilitarian approach to the entire process. That is in everyone's best interest. Are there any other countries that we could look to for inspiration on how to make our criminal justice system better? There's a lot of countries doing a better job than us. Um, I, I spend a lot of my time in Latin America training lawyers, and you know, I come home and I'm grateful to be here because there's certainly a lot worse systems out there. But when you look to Europe, and particularly to Northern Europe, they do so much better than we do in terms of their criminal justice. Uh, when people go to prison, they go to prison and they might be spending 10 years there, but their whole philosophy is during these 10 years, we're going to make you into a better citizen. We're going to give you the capacity to function better when you get out of here. And we have the opposite approach in this country. It's all about punishment. We put people in facilities in the middle of the desert, hundreds of miles from their families. We cut them off from their families so they have trouble getting back into those families when they come out. We don't give them enough skills while they're in there to get decent jobs. And then we label them for the rest of their lives as convicted felons. That makes it difficult to get jobs, difficult to get apartments, difficult to get credit. And we wonder why people end up back in prison. So there's so many things we could do better. You know, I want to ask you a question a little bit out of left field, okay? In preparing for this interview, uh, Midday producer Harrison Patino talked with a former prisoner who writes about life inside prison. He was really pessimistic about reforms. One of the things he told us was that the mainstream media gives the public the impression that prisoners are irredeemable. So I started to, you know, think about all the crime shows that we see, all the true crime shows we see, all the crime movies we see, all, all the police procedurals that we read, do they contribute to the problems in the system? Oh, I think absolutely. I think fear uh, is such a powerful thing 
And it can lead to such horrible policies when people are voting out of fear, making decisions based on fear. And, you know, I went to my first prison when I was in law school. Um, my first year criminal law professor took me to a prison, took our class to a prison. And when I went to law school, by the way, I went there to be a corporate lawyer. <laughs> I'd gone to business school and just did MBA classes, and I was going to be a corporate lawyer. And that visit to one prison changed my life. I, I started talking to the guys there. I then started teaching in the prison when I was in law school. Um, my wife and I started a family literacy program in the D.C. prison where we would teach uh, the guys how to teach their children to read. And then we'd bring the children out to the prison. We'd have buses round them up every weekend and have reading sessions with the guys who are locked up and their children to keep them connected to them. But I've spent so much time in prisons over the last few decades that it's hard for me to relate to the fear people have about it. But mo most people in prison are just people who made bad decisions or had bad things happen to them or came from bad environments, and they're basically good people. There's this very small percentage of the prison population who are these extremely violent people that people should be afraid of, but there's a lot of TV and movies made about those people. And I think it does create a fear that then politicians prey on when they get their vote saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect you and your family from all those evil people. And prisons are designed to lock people away from sight. So it's very effective. Um, so unless you have a loved one who's locked up, um, you, most people don't know anything about what's going on in prison. What keeps you going, Justin? As you say, there's so much heartbreak in your work. I mean, I have an amazing team. I, I don't think I could have done this work alone for the last decades. Um, I've got an amazing team of lawyers who are all my former students. Every year I get 12 new bright-eyed, bushy-tailed law students ready to go. Um, I get to live in this beautiful city of San Diego. I've got a beautiful grandchild I get to play with in the morning before I go to work. Uh, I try to run every day and eat well. Uh, it's a combination of a lot of things to stay mentally healthy doing this. I did recently realize I'm now the longest serving Innocence Project director in the world, uh, which is a little scary. So most of the people I started doing this with uh, gave up at some point. But um, I just, I, I love this work and every person that I get to walk out of prison just, just pumps me up to go on to the next case. We've been speaking about Justin Brooks' new book, You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. Justin Brooks is a criminal defense lawyer, a law professor, and founding director of the California Innocence Project based right here in San Diego. Justin, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for a discussion on what leads to wrongful convictions and the problems in our criminal justice system. We'd love to hear your comments. You can always reach us at 619-452-0228 or by email at midday at kpbs.org. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh, and thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. 
Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.